there are those who are deliberate in saying, don't you listen to what the Bible says. It's all wrong. And what the Bible says is evil is in fact good. And what the Bible says is good is in fact evil. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. What should we do when the culture has lost its moral compass? Can true north be determined again, or are we completely lost as a society? Hello, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom Pennington has part five of his series titled Trending Versus Truth, exploring the biblical response to various moral issues that are trending, including gender, sexuality, morality, and social justice issues. A quick glance at social media will reveal very quickly that our current Western culture is drowning in moral relativism. More people now than at any other point in history believe that truth changes over time based on societal or cultural influences. But what exactly is moral relativism? And where did it come from? And how does it impact you today? Keep that in mind as we join Tom right now on The Word Unleashed. Unless you are Rip Van Winkle or Captain America and you've been asleep for decades, you know that the moral views of Americans have changed dramatically. The basic reason is that our culture has increasingly embraced moral relativism. In an article in the Christian Post, there the author described the growth that has happened and is continuing to happen in terms of moral relativism. It was reporting the results of a major study conducted by Impact 360 Institute and Barna to learn how moral views have changed even within the currently living generations. I think you know the latest generation has been called Generation Z. It's composed of somewhere between 69 and 70 million children and teens born after 1999. Looking at that group, Generation Z, this article states that 31% of them strongly agree that what is morally right and wrong changes over time based on society. And you might be encouraged when you hear 31%. It's like, wow, I thought it'd be higher than that. Well, don't get too excited because another 43% agree somewhat with that statement. Just 10% of the young people in that age group strongly disagree that what is morally right and wrong changes over time based on society. Folks, that means that 90% of Gen Z have embraced some degree of moral relativism and only 10% are opposed to it. Sadly, the professing Christian church is close behind that. In a survey by Barna, 4,000 professing Christians were asked if there are, in fact, moral absolutes. Professing Christians now, 32% of professing Christian adults agreed that there are moral absolutes. 32%. 9% of professing Christian teens agreed, less than 1 in 10, that there are moral absolutes. As a society, we are awash in moral relativism. 
Now let me give you just a couple of examples of how this growing trend affects our culture's views on specific moral issues. When asked if lying is wrong, okay, there's a pretty basic question, is lying wrong? 61% of those who were born before 1946 agreed. Wish it were higher, but 61% of that group agreed it's morally wrong. Now watch the trend. 54% of boomers said that lying is morally wrong. 50% of Gen X, 42% of millennials, and 34% of Gen Z. On the LGBTQ issue, Gallup reports that one point, now stay with these percentages, I know I'm giving you a lot, but I want you to track with me with what's going on in the culture. Gallup reports that 1.3% of that older generation identify as LGBTQ. 2% of boomers, 3.8% of Gen X, 9.1% of millennials, and a staggering 16.5%, that's one in six in Gen Z, identify as LGBTQ. This one staggers me because it doesn't seem that long ago, but Gallup also reports that in 1996, about 25 years ago, 70% of Americans opposed same-sex marriage. In this year, 30% oppose. In other words, there was a complete swap over 30 years' time, or 25 years' time, of the majority, the vast majority of Americans. How does that happen? Well, it's moral relativism. But we've even gone beyond allowing same-sex marriage. The Pew Research Center reports that about 50%, 48% of Gen Z believes that not only should homosexual marriage be allowed, but that it is good for our society. The gender issue is another example of how moral relativism is changing our culture's moral views. 60% of Gen Z believes that official documents, medical, government, etc., official documents should include gender options beyond male and female. Now folks, as we have learned over the last couple of weeks, because our culture has abandoned God, because it has therefore silenced the Scripture, it has a result, as a result of both of those things completely lost its moral compass. And it makes sense. I mean, once you walk away from all the divinely revealed standards of morality, once you say, I don't want anything to do with the God who is the Creator, I don't want anything to do with the Bible, then you are left with only two options when it comes to morality. The first option is you can simply deny outright that there are any standards of right and wrong. And folks are doing that today. In fact, that's exactly what the proponents of what is called evolutionary psychology teach. There is a growing discipline in our American universities called evolutionary psychology. It is the logical conclusion of Darwinism. And this branch of study rejects morality as a viable category. Forget defining morality, it rejects it as a viable category. For example, biologist William Provine, or Provine, who taught for many years before his death at Cornell University, one of the leading universities in our country, he traveled 
from university to university across America teaching our kids, he argued that we have not yet fully worked out all of the moral implications of Darwinism. Quote, there, and this, these are the moral implications we haven't worked out yet, okay? Here we go. Quote, there is no ultimate foundation for ethics, no ultimate meaning in life, and no free will, end quote. Now, Darwin himself understood that there are profound ethical ramifications to his theory. In fact, this may shock you, but have you ever heard the full title of his most famous book written in 1859? The full title is this, On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or the Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life, end quote. In The Descent of Man, he argued, in his book, The Descent of Man, he argued this, quote, infanticide, especially of females, has been thought to be good for the tribe, end quote. In the same book, he also wrote this, quote, the civilized races of man will almost certainly exterminate and replace the savage races throughout the world, end quote. For the life of me, I cannot figure how Darwin gets a pass on his eugenics and his radical, radical views, but he does. Now, thankfully, most people are not yet ready to fully embrace such a radical position as there simply are no standards of right and wrong. But they're caught in a dilemma. The rest of them who, who will not embrace that radical view are in a dilemma because they want certain behaviors to be right and they want other behaviors to be wrong because, frankly, that's the only way society functions and it's the only way they can promote their viewpoints. I mean, think about it. If there really is no right or wrong, then who cares what their view is? And who cares if I hold to it? So there has to be something that's right and something that's wrong or they don't have a, they don't have a chance of trying to persuade anybody else to their view. So they're left with only one course of, act, uh, of action. If they're not going to deny all standards of right and wrong, the only thing they can do is embrace the adaptable standards of moral relativism. And folks, that is exactly where we are. We are reimagining morality, and we're doing so constantly, almost daily, certainly yearly. Now, because of that, because it, it so permeates our society, and it really sets the foundation for the specific issues we're going to address, I want us to examine this issue of moral relativism, and I want us today to consider several important facts about it. Now, let me just say that the first part of this is going to be a little more like a classroom because I need to give you some, some background, and then we're going to get to how the Scripture addresses it. So be patient, stay with me. It'll be a little longer before we get there than usual, but I think you'll understand why when we do. So let's look at some important facts about moral relativism. First of all, let's begin with a functional definition. What exactly does it teach? Here's a very simple, straightforward definition. Moral relativism teaches there are no universally true moral principles. Instead, what is right, they say, is relative. It, it, 
is relative to the situation. It varies with individuals and with their circumstances. There are no moral absolutes. There are no fixed moral laws that bind all people in all places at all times. Right behavior is completely conditioned on the human choice in that moment, whether an individual human choice or the collective human choice in a given situation or culture. The second humanist manifesto states this about as clearly as it can be stated, quote, we affirm that moral values derive their source from human experience. Ethics is autonomous. That's a a more expensive word for you decide. Ethics is autonomous and situational, needing no theological or ideological sanction. To deny this distorts the whole basis of life, end quote. They say this is obvious. It's obvious, they say, that, that it's, it's all based on human experience. Consistent relevists deny that any action or behavior is intrinsically, objectively evil. But that's where they get into trouble. You see, there are a couple of serious problems with moral relativism right out of the gate. One of them is that it is inherently self-contradictory. Because if I make the statement, there are no moral absolutes, what is that? A moral absolute. It's a self-defeating, self-contradictory position. Relativism also is hopelessly inconsistent because the typical moral relativist is always a moral absolutist on certain issues such as the abuse of women, the abuse of children, incest, rape, slavery, and so forth. So it's a system that's fundamentally flawed. But there you go, that's what it is. That's a functional definition. Now let's consider a second fact about moral relativism, and that is its philosophical formation. Where did it start? Or maybe better, how did it develop? Let me just say that as far as practically, it started in Genesis 3 in the garden when Satan said, you know what, Eve, you need to just sit back and sit sit in judgment on God's moral imperative. You just need to think about this. You need to rationalize this and come to your own conclusions. That's where it started practically, but that's not where it started as a philosophical system. The first champion of moral relativism as a philosophy was a Greek philosopher named Protagoras who lived in the 400s BC. He was not one who believed in the gods. He was agnostic. He was uncertain the gods existed, the Greek gods, any god. His agnosticism led him as, by the way, the doubt or denial of God always leads you to the denial of any moral absolutes. Protagoras wrote, and this is his most famous line, you perhaps heard it, Of all things, the measure is man. Of the things that are, that they are, and of the things that are not, that they are not. Man, he said, is the measure of everything. He determines both the reality and the rightness or wrongness of everything. This viewpoint continued throughout history. Fast forward to the Enlightenment. During the Enlightenment, moral relativism was, was championed at a new level by philosophers like Spinoza and David Hume. But the primary modern support for this idea 
came from Charles Darwin himself. Again, in 1859, he wrote on the origin of species, and as his evolutionary ideas developed into a unified theory, a lot of Christians began warning. They began saying, look, there are going to be huge ethical repercussions of this. If man is only an animal, then why should there be any ethical imperatives? How can there be any ethical imperatives? Darwinian, Darwinist, I should say, assured Christians at that point that man didn't need God to be good. In fact, that's continued to be true. There was a book written not long ago, in the last 25 years or so, that made exactly that same point. But over the last 150 years, the ramifications of Darwinian evolution have radically redefined human morality. That's its philosophical formation. That's how it has become so prevalent in our culture. Now, thirdly, I want us to look at the cultural expressions. How is it trending? How does our culture's growing rejection of biblical morality and an acceptance of moral relativism express itself? How is it demonstrated in the lives of the people around you? Well, there are a number of them. In fact, I had to cut several from my notes just because of time. So let me just give you the main ones. Okay, here's, here's how it shows up primarily in our culture. Number one, intentionally redefining what the Bible calls morally evil as morally good. In other words, there are those who are deliberate in saying, don't you listen to what the Bible says, it's all wrong, and what the Bible says is evil is in fact good. And what the Bible says is good is in fact evil. Let me give you a couple of examples. Peter Singer is currently the professor at Princeton University, where many of our cultural elites are educated, the next generation of leaders. He teaches in the Center for Human Values, and he teaches undergraduate students practical ethics. Don't miss that. He teaches practical ethics. The New Yorker calls him, quote, the most influential philosopher alive. The New England Journal of Medicine says he has had, quote, more success in affecting changes in acceptable behavior than any philosopher since Bertrand Russell, end quote. So what exactly does this professor of ethics at Princeton University teaching our kids, the next generation of leaders, what does he teach? Well, here's an example. Singer teaches, quote, any kind of fully consensual sexual behavior involving two people or 200 is ethically fine, end quote. By the way, he goes on to include such aberrations as necrophilia and bestiality. Yes, he champions them as morally acceptable. He writes that the Judeo-Christian tradition taught us that humans alone are made in the image of God, but he says that's all wrong. Evolution has refuted the biblical account of creation. Quote, we are animals, and sex across the species barrier, there's a delicate way to say it, sex across the species barrier ceases to be an offense to our status and dignity as human beings, end quote. You understand? This is a reputable professor at a leading American university teaching our children ethics. Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, was one of the chief architects of the sexual revolution. I don't understand how she gets a pass either. Planned Parenthood was all about eugenics, but she gets a pass. 
Nancy Piercy described Sanger's goal in the sexual revolution this way, quote, it was to construct a scientific approach to sexuality based squarely on Darwinianism. Sanger portrayed the drama of history as a, listen to this now, Sanger portrayed the drama of history as a struggle to free our bodies and minds from the constraints of morality, what she called the cruel morality of self-denial and sin. She touted sexual liberation as the only method to find inner peace and security and beauty. Finally, Sanger offered this sweeping messianic promise, and these are Sanger's own words, through sex, mankind will attain the great spiritual illumination which will transform the world and light up the only path to an earthly paradise, end quote. Now, what I want you to see is there are people out there who, for reasons beyond me, are profoundly respected in our culture who are saying what the Bible says is evil is dead wrong, it's good. And what the Bible is saying is good, is dead wrong, it's evil. You realize that there are people who would say the very fact that I say some of the things we're talking about are sinful, defined by the Scripture, they would say that I'm immoral. You see how it all reverses. There's a second expression so let me, just, let me just summarize the first one by saying this. There are people who openly and brazenly redefine morality. A second expression in our culture is this, reclassifying moral choices as inherited biological orientation and claiming, therefore, the protection of civil rights. Let me give you an example. Take the radical cultural shift on homosexuality that has occurred over the last 30 years. How did that happen? A lot of people want to know, how did that happen so quickly? It wasn't an accident. It was the result of a brilliant, carefully crafted marketing strategy that was laid out in a book written in 1989, a book entitled After the Ball, how America will conquer its fear and hatred of gays in the 90s. This, by the way, I'm not the only one who believes this was the key to what's happened over the last 30 years. The homosexual community would say this was key. Here's what the authors of After the Ball wrote. Quote, gays should be considered to have been born gay. To suggest in public that homosexuality might be chosen is to open the can of worms labeled moral choices and sin and give the religious intransigence a stick to beat us with. Straits must be taught that it is as natural for some persons to be homosexual as it is for others to be heterosexual, end quote. Now, those of you who are old enough, remember this. Some of you don't know this, but let me just tell you. Before that book, before 1989, the entire homosexual community spoke in one voice of what they were involved in as, quote, the homosexual lifestyle, or the other common phrase was their sexual preference. Now, what is implied in both of those? Choice. But over the last 30 years, as they have worked this marketing plan, they have shifted from words like lifestyle and preferences and moral choices to biological determinism. They essentially created a third category. There are males 
and there are females and there are homosexuals. And now, of course, it's LGBTQ, etc. And all of those, since it is part of who I am, it's part of my makeup that I have nothing to do with, it should fall just like ethnicity under civil rights protection. Folks, it, it was a brilliant plan, and it's worked perfectly. Reclassifying moral choices as inherited biological orientation. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part five of his series titled Trending Versus Truth. Tom will have part six for you on our next program, and we hope you'll join us then. Well, we'd like you to know that Tom has a new book out titled The God Who Hears, a book of pastoral prayers. It features 31 scripture readings and accompanying pastoral prayers. Tom's book is available for purchase right now online at thewordunleashed.org. As always, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.